big dreams and just chase them. You know what I mean? And and throughout my journey, I've met a lot of people. You know what I mean? Different walks of life that has uh, welcomed me um, into different areas. And so that's why I'm here, man. You know what I mean? That's why that's why I'm here. So um, I'm excited to talk about today. Welcome to another episode of How To Business, a show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and industry experts to share their how. Today's guests are former NFL player Jamon Brown and former stock contractor and rodeo performer Tim Sparks. They sit down with us to discuss cannabis and the importance of community. Jamon and Tim, along with their other partners, join forces to build Island Gold, one of the fastest growing legal cannabis companies in the world with over 30 plus years experience in cultivation, processing, and retail. Currently, their operations span throughout the United States and the Caribbean islands. In our conversation, Tim and Jamon share their approach to the cannabis industry and their love for philanthropy. Without further ado, let's hop into the episode. Jamon Brown, Tim Sparks, thank you guys for taking the time to come on the show. You guys have a partnership. You've been working on a couple of things, but let's kind of go back. Where, where did your all's relationship start? You mentioned it was in a room. You got brought into the same room. What did this room look like? What, what were you guys doing? <laughs> Man, listen, I, I, I'll let Tim tell his side. Pre-COVID. I'll let Tim tell his side, but for me, um, you know, it's right around 2019, I believe, and um, I had just signed to Atlanta, right, which was my biggest deal in, in football, which is the second, right, the second contract. If you're thinking um, sports, I know football specifically, um, second contract is typically the one you want to get to, yep. right? So um, I was kind of crossing that threshold, and um, I'm, I, I had my support – um, Danny, who uh, he does a number of things for me. Um, big, the biggest role for him is he's the executive director um, of my foundation. So a lot of the things that my foundation has been able to execute has been because of him. Um, but what he has a niche in doing is networking, right? So when I signed my contract, I said, hey, um, I think now is the time I can get into some of those hobbies and some of those interests that, you know, people say, hey, you you reach a certain point and you can get into them, right? Um, and so he did what he does. He started call, calling everybody, right, um, that's within his network. Um, of, of course, he played with Chris Redman. Um, Chris Redman said, hey, um, have a have a really good guy that um, he felt we should we should meet. Um, which was Tim, you know what I mean? And so um, I think right before I was going off to Atlanta for, you know, the full-time gig for the season, um, we met. <clears throat> and uh, it really, it didn't feel weird. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Which that was big for me because I had been in a lot of weird situations. <laughs> mm -hmm. You get what I'm saying? Like even though I was signing a big contract, it was the weirdest Right, because we no one really knew each other. Exactly. Yes. Right, but what was different when I walked in the room with Tim, um, and Danny and um, Mama Kelly, who uh, Tim's wife, you know what I mean, who who I now see as a mother, right? That's exactly how I felt. That's awesome. Right, felt like I was walking into a warm room, and so 
um, when we able to uh, kind of get past the introductions and start talking about why we were there, you know, that was even better. You know what I mean? And so um, that's really kind of my backstory of, of you know, <laughs> when we met, how we got there, what it was like for me. I'm sure he could could tell you a lot of different things because by that point, and again, like he alluded to, it was pre-COVID, right? But they had already forged a way in the Caribbean that really spoke for itself, that spoke to me, right? Because Caribbean Island Gold, not only does it produce premium cannabis, it employed people that lived in the Caribbean islands, right? Yes. So it took them from, um, you know, a sideway way of doing business and made them legit growers, right? So now they can really uh, feed their families and sustain. Um, meanwhile, you know, we are forging a way, um, trying to create new partnerships, new you know, ways of uh, of operation and logistics so that way we can accommodate more people. Um, you know, I couldn't help but say, how do I help? How do I get into this? Um, what can I do? And uh, really, Tim found this space for me. And uh, that's that, that that's that's all I can say about it. What, what do you what do you say, Tim? Oh, I agree. Everything <laughs> everything happens for a reason. And he was sitting in our office when we made. Uh, all these plans that we were doing, the original, do you want me to talk about how we got there and how we yeah. started in the care? Yeah, bring it on. This is the yeah. platform for right. it. <laughs> Originally, when we were on the hemp program here in the state of Kentucky, we were one of the first people to grow uh, hemp in the state. And we were on the pilot research program back in the early days when there were just a few of us growing. And... Uh, so we had done, we had done grows. We'd we'd try we'd grow or grew several different ways under plastic with drip lines and stuff like that. To make a long story short on that, how we got to the Caribbean, we were explaining to some people in Florida how we did it, and this guy had connections that I was talking to in Trinidad and in Saint Vincent and the Grenadines. So he had talked to Sabuto Caesar, who's the Minister of Agriculture in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, who was wanting to make medical marijuana legal in their country. And uh, while they were in that process, they wanted to bring their people out of the bush growing illegally and make them grow legally. Mm -hmm. And that was the original format for me going to the Caribbean, <laughs> which I thought I was going down there to help them teach them how to grow. I didn't know I was going down there to bring them out of the bush and make them be legal and then learn how to grow. But anyway, that was a, that was an experience, but um, that's how we got to the Caribbean. So once we got to St. Vincent and the Grenadines, um, there was no laws written. They had, you know, in the Caribbean, St. Vincent had a reputation for growing some of the best weed in the Caribbean. The reason for that is they're a volcanic island. There's an active volcano on the island called La Safier. And we'll get into the volcano eruption a little oh, later. Man. That that happened oh, on man. mine and JB's watch down there. <laughs> oh, no. And we oh, couldn't man. stop it, no matter how hard we tried. So, but the... Uh, the minerals that 
that island has in their soil comes from the bowels of the earth through this volcanic eruption that's happened for millions of years. And the terpene profile of the marijuana that we grow there is just so much better than everywhere else because of the different minerals and the different soil type. So when I got there, I thought, man, I could plane a nail and grow a spike in this state. <laughs> I mean, it's good soil, and, and, and we, can, we can do a lot of things. And, but they had that reputation for growing good marijuana and illegally exporting it from one island to the other island. And uh, that was the main reason that Sabuda wanted us to help them is to make their people legal, to keep them from going to prison in Barbados or St. Lucia or Antigua. So that's what we did. Um, we got there. We, we work with the farmers. We work with the Rastafari. The first law that was enacted in St. Vincent de Grenadines on the cannabis was an amnesty act, which we had a big part to play in. And that was to have an amnesty law that would bring the people that was in jail or that had been in jail, that had a record for having marijuana or smoking marijuana, selling marijuana, whatever. We wanted to give them amnesty. Mm-hmm. But to give, once we gave them amnesty, they had a right to grow mm-hmm. because uh, most of them, was, a lot of them were Rastafari. And we'll get into the Rasta thing here shortly. But the um, the grow part of it, you know, they they to grow commercial weed is totally different than growing weed in your backyard or growing out here just for somebody to smoke or or what we call bush weed or beach weed that they sell in the islands on the you know because they use chicken manure, they use cow manure, they use horse manure, goat manure. And the marijuana plant or the cannabis plant, hemp, marijuana, either one, as that plant grows, it absorbs everything out of the soil. It takes Mm -hmm. everything out of the soil that it can get, like those minerals. But it also takes the bad stuff, Roundup, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) pesticides, herbicides into the plant. And they were using all that stuff, not to mention they were using the manure, the chicken manure, the, the goat manure and stuff which was creating E. coli and salmonella <laughs> in the wheat. Oh, gosh. Mold, yeast. I mean, all this stuff was is in what they call bushweed. So the biggest thing that we had to do is convince them that had, these people who had been growing this for many, many years, that they were doing it wrong, the wrong way. The wrong way to sell. Now, if you want to do it that way to smoke and it's it your that's own, okay. that's, that's on you, you know. But, but if you're going to sell marijuana, you can't make people sick with it, mm-hmm. you know. Exactly. So that's this is a healing plant. This plant mm-hmm. is it's a whole plant. It's we use every bit of the plant to heal, mm-hmm. not to make people sick. And what we're doing now is we're making people sick just for a high. Right. So we got to get them out of that mindset. So once we did the amnesty. Um, the uh, that bill was was put in effect. It hadn't passed through Parliament yet, 
So then we had one morning I, um, going into the Rasta part. I hope I'm not boring you guys. No, this is great. <laughs> so going into the Rasta part, one morning I walked into Sabuto's office with um, uh, Sabuto and Norman and, and uh, a couple other guys. And there sat like 15 Rastafari around the conference room table. They were all pissed. <laughs> and I'm going, and they go, hey, man, you do all this, man, for the criminals. What you do for the Rastaman? <laughs> I said, well, what's the Rastaman want? <laughs> I mean, I'm from Kentucky. I'm a dumb old country boy from Kentucky. You tell me what the Rastaman want, man, and I'll give you what the Rastaman want. I said, well, what you want, man? So anyway, they explained to me, but I had no idea. I wasn't Rastafari. I'd heard of them. I'd heard of Bob Marley. Right. You know, I'd heard right. some of the songs and right. talking about Rasta, but I had no idea what the Rasta what the religion was or the right. culture. Right. So the first hour and a half, they explained to me the culture of the Rasta. But then they also explained to me that marijuana was one of the sacraments. And they had been persecuted throughout the Caribbean and, and basically throughout the world. They had been persecuted because of that being one of their sacraments, because it's so illegal everywhere else, which it's a plant that God gave us. Mm -hmm. It's a plant for healing. They use it as a religious sacrament and for healing. I mean, they, these guys don't eat meat, <laughs> you know, so they, they're very health conscious. So anyway, we sat there that morning. Was It was 830 till 4.30 the next morning. And during that time, we all went through two attorney firms who came in to help us write the legalese to the common sense we were putting in the Rastafari Sacrament Act. And the first Rastafari Sacrament Act ever written in the world was written that morning or that day in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So then I was asked, to set on the select committee of parliament to push it through to get it passed. First white man and the first American to ever set on parliament anywhere in the Caribbean that I know of. And so we pushed that sacrament act through with in, into parliament. And Sabuto actually took it to Caracom and any island throughout Caracom that wanted to pass that act passed it so their Rastafari could smoke their sacrament without being persecuted or without being in jail or imprisoned and jailed. So once they did that, we know the Jamaicans then asked to use the law. And uh, the attorney for the Jamaican government also took it to the United Nations and read the act at the United Nations. And I think it, I, I don't hold me 100% on this, but I think it passed throughout the United Nations to give that same law that was written there. They might have added a few things to it, but the gist of it was the law that was written that day in that conference room. Uh, so the Rastafari can smoke their weed legally and give us give them religious freedom. That's awesome. And so are the how involved are the Rastafari today? Are they still highly involved? in? Oh, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Rastas what? are... What does that relationship look like? Are they, I guess, business partners, or would they? How would you consider them? Well, in the in the islands, 
the Rasta and the people that were the, the, the people that got the amnesty program, they are allowed to grow because of their religion or of what happened with with them, with them. At, in a young at a young or or during the pro, I mean during the time they were arrested or whatever. They're allowed to grow. So what they will do is actually the Rastafari, a lot of the Rasta got jobs with like with Caribbean gold in and Island Gold in St. Vincent, which is uh, part of our part of the umbrella. Uh, our umbrella. A lot of the Rastafari will grow their own, bring it, we grade it and buy it, you know. So that was the another law that, that was that was done was the Rastafari Sacrament Act. Then the the main medical marijuana law was written. And uh, the one thing that I stressed and, and, and I really pushed Sabuto and everybody to do this was Jamaica was also writing the same law. And um, one of the attorneys for the Jamaicans is my attorney and mine Kelly's attorney in Antigua now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But their law, they didn't put export in it. So there's no place at that time in the world that could export marijuana legally anywhere in the world because of the international narcotics, because of the U.S. and, you know, the, the U.S. laws. So you could not do it. And I said, let's put it in the legislation anyway because once they do lighten up, we will have export of marijuana legally somewhere somebody's going to be able to import it somebody's going to make a law to import it and they did so st vincent the grenadines was the first country to implement an import and export law for marijuana that's awesome for medical marijuana so you go down there to train some people right, talk to like, a green beret, like a green beret where they they send the green berets into you know underdeveloped places and they train their military and then yes. send the military <laughs> up at, Come on, man. at what moment did you find yourself in the middle of this legislation and these laws the first day <laughs> because they had no laws <laughs> I'm teaching people to do something illegally, illegally because right. there was no laws passed. Mm-hmm. Well, first we had to get a law passed because mm-hmm. the International Narcotics Union, I mean, it, it would have shut it down really quick. So the first <laughs> thing we really had to do was start working with the laws. How did you go about that? Like, did you have any experience? No, I'm a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as a, as a farmer from Kentucky, right. I guess, how did you, how were you able to, one, start talking about legislation and writing it, and then two, what did the timeline look like? How long did all three of those laws take? Well, we actually started working in the hemp program, I think, in 2015, uh, here and you know we've seen what happened with the hemp program in the state of Kentucky. So that was some of the things that was weighing on my mind. No, okay, we don't want to do what we did in Kentucky and screw this whole program up. The same thing happened in Oklahoma. So we were at, we were also working in the state of Oklahoma uh, 
trying to get a license there. They were, um, that license, we got our first license in Oklahoma in 2018 uh, to grow medical marijuana. So, and then we was working with uh, a young man by the name of John Finstrom out of Michigan. And John's been to mm-hmm. John's John medical marijuana program. It's, it's a state of the art. State of the art. State of the art. One of the <laughs> best marijuana programs anywhere in the world. California, anywhere in the world. John has it in Michigan. So, and Kelly, my wife Kelly and John are business partners on some other things, and they they work together on a lot. So we had all, and we had worked with John on some of the laws that he had and some of the things that they had faced in Michigan. So what we did was we took all the things that happened in Colorado, that happened in Las Vegas. We'd work with uh, MJ Holdings, Paris, uh, guy that owns MJ Holdings, our president CEO of MJ Holdings out in Vegas. He had told us some of the things that he had faced when they were trying to get the laws written there. And, and, and just we brought all of this knowledge together to – help them write their laws down in the Caribbean. That's awesome. And so I guess, how did you go about teaching them? Because like you mentioned, they've, they've already been growing it illegally. <laughs> they had all these weird methods that weren't necessarily contributing to the quality of the plant. How do you go about telling someone they've been doing something their whole life wrong? You don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> you go through the back door <laughs> and you show them, well, basically what we did was, was we just showed them a different way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then they would look and say, oh, wow, I like that. Mm-hmm. And then during the process, during the process of showing them the right way, I would say, you know, chicken manure has salmonella in it or has E. coli or you know, whatever it's got in it. That plant absorbs everything out of the soil. You think that might be, yeah, mine. <laughs> just something they didn't think about because that was that was the only fertilizer they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had no money to ex- import fertilizer that we use today. That was all they had, so they had to use what they had. But once you show them a different way and give them an opportunity to, to purchase or to to like the government gave them a lot of fertilizer and stuff that they brought in to help them get started. Mm-hmm. Um, that was some of the things we did. We just let them basically work at their pace and realize this is a better way. And learn themselves rather than forcing it on them. I, I mean, I, th- I think it's like anybody. You you show me better, I do better. You know what I right, mean? And, right. and and as you can see, Tim has a, a welcoming, warming spirit um, that no matter what you look like or where you come from, you'll, you'll at least listen. And if you see someone that's trying to care for what you care for, then you'll take notice. And I think that's really, really in the grand scheme of what happened. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, you know, an, another thing, too, is, is those guys taught me a lot, too. The Rasta, <laughs> the Rasta and some of those illegal farmers forgot more about marijuana than most of us know <laughs> because they've been growing it to survive. Right. You know, when you grow something to survive, it's a little bit different than growing it to just make money. Make money, right. And so... You know, there was there was a lot of things that they taught us. Like, uh, one one of the things um, it was we had a business partner, and I love him to death. But he, <laughs> the guy gave him a bag of seed, 
And he said, go plant these seeds, man. And this was during COVID. We couldn't, I couldn't get down there because they had restricted all our yep. flight at that Everything time. Everything shuts down. Shut down. <laughs> I couldn't get down there to, to look at the crops, to do anything. But he was on the island, so they gave him a big bag of seed. They said, plant these seeds. And I'm telling them, no, order them from this seed banker, this seed banker, this seed. Don't, 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 don't plant those. Oh, man, it's all right. He told me how to do it. <laughs> so he plants them. And they told him to plant three seeds per hill. One, because it's going to be a female. One, because it's going to be a male. And the other one, because it's going to be a homorphodite. <laughs> a hermit. So, which two do you got to cut out? <laughs> you got to cut out the hermaphrodite and the male. <laughs> exactly. So it doesn't seed. <laughs> exactly. But how do you know all of them, it, it, those three seeds are going to be that? You don't. You don't. And, I'm, and I couldn't put my hands on it. I couldn't be there. So yeah. I, I mean, I'm pulling my, I mean, I'm. You grew 900 plants just to keep 300. Just to yeah. keep three. <laughs> so, so finally, comes October. Hopefully. <laughs> so I get there, and I would tell you the story about COVID, but I won't. So I get there, and I'm looking through all these beautiful fields. <laughs> this big and just big, bushy, pretty, beautiful plants. And I get there, and I start walking through them, and they were just seeds. Millions, just millions, and millions, <laughs> and millions of seeds. The whole crop is running. <laughs> Across the whole island. Wow. <laughs> Everything got pollinated. Yes. Everything was running. We had a contract for export. <laughs> and we couldn't. Couldn't oh, fill it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Because of <laughs> that. I, I'm glad this Bag story is said with seat. a smile and giggles. <laughs> well, I mean, no, what, I mean, what, that, what, what are you going to do? do? That, no, and I really, I think you guys need to give yourself more credit in terms of teaching people. Because it's, it's hard to teach people without, you know, kind of, everyone has a thing for authority. They don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> but to be able to come in and teach people in a way where they just adopt a new way and don't even realize they're learning something new. Right. I think that takes talent and mm. it. You know, I wish teachers in elementary school could do stuff Come like on. that. Come that's on. it's it's beautiful <laughs> that you're able to do it in such a way. But yeah, that's wild. I can't. I love your positive attitude <laughs> and the and the fail fast and just figure it out. It's awesome. Well, I will tell you. You ask about the uh, the Rasta and the, and the people, and one of the reasons that they started doing it my way. So. This year, where we had all these males, we had one field up on the north leeward, or north windward side of the island, and this field was up high, so it hadn't got the pollination that the rest of them had got, so it was still decently good. And we were in there, and we had some males, and we had some Hermes in there, and I had a Rasta guy there who was just an amazing grower. Um, Herb's Eye was his name, and her... Herb's I and I are, are going through checking the males and cutting males out. And he said, can you get me some more people to help me, and we'll get all the males out tomorrow. So I went down, and I got my Rasta guys that was at the greenhouse, and I brought them up, and I said, guys, help Herb's I. Let's get these out. So we were cutting males and going through getting the Hermes out and everything, and I we just got some weed off 
at the grow that we had harvested. And I mean, it was good, but it was uh, some peanut butter breath, some, <laughs> um, I can't remember all the different uh, cookies and cream or something. <laughs> I can't remember. But anyway, and I had it a little bit of it in my pocket. And I'm going to give the, I'm going to give the Rasta guys this. They'd never had, they'd been smoking bushweed. Nobody at that time, nothing had ever been grown the right way. <laughs> well, we'd, we'd taken it to the MCA, the Medical Marijuana Authority, and had it tested. Well, that peanut butter breath come in about 31% THC. Foo! Whopping. Ra- yeah, boy. <laughs> the Rastaman, they're not used to that. They used to, they used to smoking 12%, so 12, 15%. So you had, bush you had people sleep. <laughs> so, so we take lunch, and we're all sitting around and, and eating lunch, and, and, you know, they're a wonderful giving people. And they were sharing their food with us and everything, which is their lovely, you know, island food. And so after we got through eating, I said, guys, I want you to try some of this. It's the first stuff on the island. You guys are going to get to smoke it first. First good stuff ever grown on the island. <laughs> you get to smoke it first. So I gave them, and I had one Rasta guy by the name of Courage. <laughs> so they all sat there and they smoke it. Oh, man, this is good shit, man. <laughs> this is good shit, man. And so after we went back out into the fields, and I, and they were before lunch, they were all just jibber-jabbering and talking. You can hear them throughout the field. Well, after lunch, nobody was saying a word. <laughs> so I look over, and I see Courage, and he's standing there holding his head, a hand on, on, on two limbs of this medical marijuana plant and he's just staring at it and i said courage are you okay yeah man yeah man that's good shit man that's good shit man and you know from that point on i don't care if i told them whatever i told them about weed they were going to do it because that was the best they'd ever had instant respect Yeah, yeah 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 That's awesome. <laughs> but then they wanted, you know, we still promoted the medical factors of it. You know, mm-hmm. we needed we needed mm-hmm. to do that, you know, because it was medical marijuana. It still is medical marijuana down there. It's not recreational. Right. And and currently is it, are you exporting a majority of it or does most of it stay on the island? Well, COVID. <laughs> Before COVID, export was good. I mean, we were getting ready to have a big export that that field got messed up. Then COVID happened, mm-hmm. so it was hard to to do anything as far as export. You couldn't do anything. I mean, we couldn't get there. We couldn't do the things we needed to do. So, what happened was some of the countries that wanted export started growing their own. Mm. So our export window kind of got closed a little bit. Because a lot of those countries that we could export into started growing their own and their own greenhouses, set their own programs up because of COVID. I mean, people weren't allowed. I mean, we weren't allowed to fly to Europe. We weren't to fly to, to go to the places that we could export it into. The other thing was the EU GMP standards in Europe was so much higher than what it is here in the U.S. or anywhere else. The, the GMP standards were just over the top. And some countries like Germany and, and some of those in England, 
those places. It had to be pharmaceutical grade, couldn't be grown outdoors. It had to be grown indoors. Well, in the Caribbean, you can't grow indoors because of the electrical cost. Mm-hmm. Here we pay 10 to 11 cents a kilowatt hour, I guess. I'm guessing that's what it is. There it's 80 cents a kilowatt hour. So it, it would be hard to, to do that. <laughs> and with the way the, the lights go, oh, no. Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> so so that's, that's what happened with the export. Um, we have now <clears throat> the way the Caribbean looks and the way that we feel that we're going to be able to, to continue to grow the medical marijuana program in the Caribbean from the British Virgin Islands to Antigua to Jamaica to St. Vincent and Grenadine, St. Lucia just passed. Barbados mm-hmm. is getting ready to go in. Is to do intercaric home mm-hmm. export. Be able to export from island to island. Like in Barbados, it's hard to grow because they're they're a coral reef. They're going to mm-hmm. have to grow indoors. Well, it, it's going to cost so much for them to grow indoors. It would be easier for them to export it in from Antigua mm-hmm. or from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Same way with Aruba and some of those other other places. So that way we can still sell to to the tourist who has a active medical card are as they come in, they can self declare mm-hmm. like in Antigua right now, they can come in, they can self declare. They can say, okay, I have migraines, sign a piece of paper and they get a medical marijuana prescription okay. just for the day to take care of their migraine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's it's progress, progress, progress. on, on Pro- how we're going to do it. And so we'll be able to export inter-Caribbean. The other thing is, when you're exporting through from island to island, there's no duties. It's duty-free. Okay. So we're 40% automatically. Right. And, you know, profit margin because we don't have to pay the duties. Right. All we have to pay is the shipping. Interesting. How does the – probably could just Google it, but is there, <laughs> is there like a, a government that overlooks the whole Caribbean – no, so they're all independent states, countries. Yeah, um, they're all independent states and countries, and each one of them, but they work together very closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, example, Sabuto Caesar, Minister of Agriculture in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, I picked him up at the airport in Antigua back in the spring and took him to a conference there uh, on uh, just regular uh, row crops, Uh you know, produce and, you know, uh, some of the other things that we're looking at doing is, is, is a beef program and they, all these islands work together like that, you know, on helping develop different exports for them to help, you know, increase jobs. (laughs) So when you talk about the business dynamics of the cannabis industry, other than just (coughs) growing a plant and then selling it after you harvest it to make money. What are the other industries within the cannabis industry? Well, the license, for example, in most of these states, you will get a license to grow. Mm -hmm. You'll have a license to dispense. You'll have a license to process. uh, process. You'll have a license to test. Mm -hmm. Um, 
in the state of I mean in in the U.S. you can't get export or import license, <laughs> right. but but in some of those other countries you can. Um, you have a license to transport. So all these different things. If you're not a good grower, but you're a good retailer, you can start a dispensary. Right. You know, and you work with good growers, and they're going to supply you with good product and 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 good medical grade stuff. Um, processing also, as far as your oils, your vapes, your your edibles, edibles and stuff like that. that, very 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 important to be able to to make sure that you have the quality, and you know that that it's done right. That it's not just poor thing of ethanol or uh, uh, what, what, what they call the what's what's that alcohol uh, pure grain alcohol the, the, Everclear. Uh, Ever, yeah. yeah yeah instead of doing it with Everclear, you know you process it right and you can you know make sure that those rules and regulations are met and 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 done. But there's a lot of businesses that can stem from just that grow. Mm-hmm. That grow is the beginning. And mm-hmm. then you got all these different legs of the business. Because, again, you use the whole plant, right? So even the trimmings, right, they get melted down, turned into oil like he was just talking about. That's why it's essential to understand the industry, right? Because a lot of us don't. A lot of us just see the cured product, the harvested product, um, know the name, know the terpene profile, but don't really understand how I got there. You know what I mean? Which was the coolest part for me, um, which Tim enlightened me on since since day one. That's why, um, you know, I've been an advocate about this, right? Because it's rewriting um, really the narrative of, of what you think about this plant, right? Um, a lot of it has been recreational, but when you think about the, the medical side of it, um, you know, how it's turned into creams, right, for, for different pain to manage pain, um, you know, it's different ways to use it, let alone different ways to, um, you know, of course, make money off of it and make a business out of it. You know, so, I mean, I think it's interesting. It's growing. Um, if you look in different markets of Florida, I think they have a cannabis restaurant, right? There's there's different things that's coming onto the scene that, you know, different places that set different standards were able to mimic off of. That's how Tim... Um, was able to take his experience from Kentucky down to the Caribbean, right? And as we keep doing that, things keep going, you know, the way it's going, people learning the things that we're learning about the plant and how it goes. Man, listen, who knows? (laughs) Right. Well, my wife, Kelly, is also, you know. The healer. The healer, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she she was one of the first people to ever, to ever, ever sell CBD in the state of Kentucky. She was also the first to ever add a flavor to it. <laughs> oh, yes. I remember her saying this. Yes. So, and we did that, or she did that, uh, because of the children that had epilepsy and that had cancer and stuff like that. We can't advocate that this stuff cures cancer. Mm-hmm. We can't say that it cures anything. All we can say is God made it. And it's a plant that heals, and we know that. I can go from my experience, but I don't want to be blackballed out of the community either by saying <laughs> that it will do something that the government says it won't, <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying. But, uh, 
But anyway, <laughs> she was one of the first people to ever do, you know that, and and is the Kentucky uh, Hemp Association. She's a board member on that, and uh, I, I know a couple of the board members are making vinaigrette. They're making <laughs> uh, they're making food products out of 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 the hemp. Of hemp. And, uh, I mean, there's this whole plant. God made this plant for a reason. <laughs> you know, it's been healing people for thousands of years. And so, you know, and and thank God now that Kentucky has saw and made the it value. legal, the value of <laughs> that, and made it legal so it can help these people out there who really, really need help. Yes. Yes, and I, I that's a good segue. And, and, you know, in Kentucky we have, tons of farmland, tons of farmers. I've always been curious, you know, if you're a really good traditional farmer, mm-hmm. can you just hop into the cannabis space and grow good cannabis or no? Well, the problem, the problem with growing marijuana, medical marijuana and growing hemp. Okay. And this is my opinion. And you know what opinions is like, <laughs> <laughs> but farmers, grow good crops, but they grow bountiful crops. And they grow to the point that we have oversupply. <laughs> it's quantity over quality. <laughs> yeah. And nothing against them. They're they doing what they're supposed to do. The problem with medical marijuana and having agriculture run it, it's not an agricultural crop. It's right. a medical crop. Right. It's for healing. We have to grow it the right way. We have to grow it. We can't look at the quantity. Right. We got to look at the quality. We can't have, and nothing against the hemp farmers. I am one. Still grow hemp. Growing hemp this year. Right. Uh, we, the medical marijuana is a totally different program because of prescriptions. It has to be segmented to where each item goes to a dispensary and it's sold for a reason mm-hmm. and that's that's the list of elements that the government has passed you know in the law so as far as having farmers go out here and just any farmer grow thousands of acres of marijuana it, you can't do that that what happens is the same thing that happened in Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. and and I'm going to tell you or explain what happened in Oklahoma. In 2018, we got our license in Oklahoma. I think that year, I, I can't remember the exact number, but there weren't very many growers. I mean, less than 500 that first year in the mm-hmm. whole state. There was probably 600 dispensaries throughout the whole state the first year. Everybody grew quality weed that first year. Everybody grew quality weed. I mean, you could go to any dispensary, you could go to testing laboratories, and you're seeing no pesticides, no salmonella, no E. coli in in these test results. You were seeing good CBD, uh, you know, uh, one-to-one mixtures, 50% CBD, 50% THC, or two-to-one, you know, healing plants right? for healing. Right. So... What happened then, the next year, and it was, it was making good money. It was, still, it was still affordable for the public. 
you know, to be able to buy a gram, you know, they, they were paying, you know, $15, $20 a gram. Mm-hmm. Still affordable for the public to do that. And as medicinal. So the next year, I mean, they quadrupled the amount of growers. <laughs> And the number of dispensaries. They just approved everybody because they were getting, I think it, I think at the time it was $2,500 per license. Mm-hmm. So Oklahoma was making a lot of money, mm-hmm. the state, right. from license. So the next year they had, you know, 1,000 licenses at $2,500 a piece. It's a pretty good chunk of change for growers. A thousand dispensaries at twenty five hundred dollars a piece. A thousand processing plants at twenty five hundred dollars a piece. You know, all of that added up. I think that second year, Oklahoma state of Oklahoma made thirty million (laughs) dollars. You know, off of just license sales alone, not counting the taxes that they were getting in off the the marijuana. Well, what started happening then is everybody was growing. Mm -hmm. You had no quality. You had no oversight. You had nothing. Everybody was growing. And you, you know, people were, then the black market started creeping in. Mm-hmm. People were trying to get rid of their stuff because the price had went down. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it went from $3,000 a pound down to $300 a pound. And uh, you had black market people coming in, buying it and, and ex- taking it across the state line, you started getting people, people was getting in trouble. And, right. and it's now they're, they're trying to reel in some of the problems that they had. Remember when we were down yep. there last year? They had to freeze everything. You got to take licenses from people. Oh, right. Gosh. You know, it, it creates a big, just a big mess. Right. And so I think what he's saying we can't do here in Kentucky is just allow anyone and everyone because we have the farmland, because we have the space. Um, We got to, you know, put some lines out there. We got to put some regulations out there that protects the plant and the industry. Let's, let's, let's build the industry. Right. First. Right. Yes. And, (laughs) and let it grow and, and expand as it grows Mm -hmm. rather than like they did the hemp industry. Now I'm probably going to get ridiculed for saying this as a hemp (laughs) farmer, but the first year there was 34 people grew hemp in the state of Kentucky. Second year there's 200 and some people grew hemp in the state of Kentucky and the tune of 1400 acres. I think something like that. I I don't remember the acreages or the actual numbers, but it went that way for three years. And then all of a sudden, an election year came. And then the state of Kentucky approved everybody that applied for hemp. And they went from, I think it was 4,800 acres in the state of Kentucky. That was keeping the price right there where everybody could make some money Mm -hmm. to 60,000 acres that year. From 4,800 acres to 60,000. Everybody got approved to grow hemp. Everybody grew hemp. There's still hemp sitting in people's barns right now. There's hemp sitting in my barn right now. Wow. It's no good. It's yeah. just three years old. I can't sell it. They let it grow too quickly. It outgrew itself. Yeah. So, so when these supply and demand forces get all out of whack, how do you position Kentucky Gold, Caribbean Gold, um, you know, as a sustainable business model in an extremely volatile market? That we is- have to do what we can to keep those industries from getting out of whack. Mm-hmm. 
we have to talk to the legislators. We have to talk to the people that's, uh, you know, that's, that's writing these laws, whether it right. be in Compliance. New Jersey, whether it be in Indiana, whether it be in Tennessee, Kentucky, wherever it's at. Guys, you, can, you only grow what you can sell. Right. You know, look at tomatoes. <laughs> if I can sell 100 acres of tomatoes every year and I grow 100 acres of tomatoes every year, we're all going to make money. We're all going to have a good living yeah. and everybody's going to get tomatoes that wants them. <laughs> but if we grow, if we can only sell 100 acres of tomatoes every year and we grow 1,000, how much tomatoes are going to be wasted? <laughs> a lot. 900 at least. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So Who knows if consumer taste will change, and we don't like tomatoes anymore. Right. And that, and the, and it's supply and demand. Oh, man. And when it, you talk about the market in, in that sense, right, the different trends and flavors and just products, um, you really got to manage it. You know what I mean? Oh, you, yes. you can't just, um, you know, choose any and everything to hit the shelves or choose, um, you know, every and every opportunity. You know what I mean? And so I, I think that's the big focus when we think of Kentucky. Um, I know when we think about um, some of the things we've had to do with Caribbean, uh, Caribbean gold, I mean, it's um, you have to be conscious, which we have to be conscious here in Kentucky about how we do this thing, right? Because it could go good or it could go really bad, right? Real quick. <laughs> and if we just start slow is is what I think Tim is saying. We start slow, let our feet get on the ground, right? Regulate how many growers we have, regulate how many uh dispensaries and things we have so that way we control the quality of what we have, then we can ensure the longevity of our industry, which Amen. is the most important thing. Amen. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because what we don't want to do is start going and then have to stop. Yes, like Oklahoma Right, they've had taken licenses. You got to read. You you don't want those types of scenarios, and we can prevent that here because of everything that's happened around us. Just got to let the right people in the room. Well, and and and, and guys, <laughs> there's yeah, and 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 you know, we hope we get a license. Right, everybody hopes we get, right. we get a license here in Kentucky. You know, um, so we're we're keeping our fingers crossed. You know, on that, and uh, but I think. I, I think the license should be uh, given to people who know what they're doing, who know how to grow this stuff, who's been there, done that. And not only talking about myself, I know many good growers here in the state mm -hmm. that knows what they're doing and knows how to grow quality product. But let's look at a couple other things. Natural disasters. Come on. Droughts. Well, things so, outside of your control, right? <laughs> and and I definitely want to hop into the the volcano story because that's super interesting. But I remember reading something that if hemp is being grown outside, hemp can pollinate marijuana plants, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. And how if let's say Kentucky, we're we're obviously still growing a lot of hemp here. How close to a hemp farm do you have to be to be at risk of your outdoor marijuana being? You shouldn't be. Fertilized. You shouldn't be. Pollinated. Pollinated. You shouldn't be because, number one, when Kentucky implemented the hemp program years ago, the first thing that everybody did was, okay, we're not getting males. We're going to clone. Mm -hmm. We got clones. We got female plants. We knew that we didn't want no males. A lot of people started growing um, for fiber, 
which they were just sowing seeds. Now that would do that, but we would keep the fiber crops way separate from the CBD crops. So the one thing that we know now is everybody's either using feminized seeds or clones. There ain't no males. And if there's any males that's being used anywhere, it's inside a lab or inside a greenhouse where somebody's actually developing their own seeds. Mm-hmm. And that's okay because if, they, if they're doing that, they know what they're doing. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So that's that's kind of an, uh, they're not giving us a bag of seeds and going planting three per hill. Yes. <laughs> like they didn't. And that was just something I, I remember yeah. reading. I can't even remember where I got it from, but it made me think, okay, if Kentucky, which, you know, we passed the medical legislation, there's still two years of back and forth that needs to happen, but mm-hmm. it's coming to the We're state. The and I was thinking it would it would probably have to mostly be indoor, but that's not necessarily true. No. Okay. No. Perfect. My wife and I wrote a, uh, a uh, a paper for the Caribbean on pollination, cross-pollination. And just for example, in that, um, you can look it up on YouTube, or, or not YouTube, but uh, on, on Google. But as an example of that, in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, we use that as an example. At islands 15 miles wide. We, if we had a male plant on the north windward side of the island, it could pollinate a plant, a female plant, on the south leeward side of the island, 15 miles away. <laughs> I, yeah, that's. I, I think I read it. Within 100 miles, it can pollinate. It just gets caught, and it's just pollen, just floating around. And it doesn't need a bug? <laughs> no, nope, I don't need a bug. That's no. what's amazing because you nor- we think about bees <laughs> yeah. and they you pollinate. Ever, yeah, everything. the workers, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Have you ever felt of, of uh, marijuana or hemp? But it's I plead the fifth. It's sticky. Reason it's sticky is, is that's trichomes. Yeah. So those little trichomes gather pollen. Mm-hmm. Ah, and they gather dust, and yeah. they gather bug shit and bird shit and everything else, and that's mm-hmm. called what. Microbials. Oh, microbials, yep. yep. We got that lesson. Yep. Yeah, and microbials, that's another problem. If yeah. you got microbial, microbials, microbials, <laughs> microbials. Yeah. If you got microbials on a plant, that's one of the reasons we can't grow outdoors for medical marijuana here is because of the microbials. Mm-hmm. We have to go either indoors or in greenhouse here because. And then you're still going to get a few microbials, but they won't pass inspection. They won't pass a test because it's not GMP certified. What are all the tests that should be done in a medical environment to ensure the quality? Well, the first test always is going to be your potency test. So we need to know how much CBD, how much CBG, how much CBN, how much CBDA, how much THC, THCA, I mean, you got to know all of of those. (laughs) You got to know all the cannabinoids that's in that plant. Right. Then you should do a terpene profile Mm -hmm. to where you know all the terpenes in that plant because terpenes are used for healing as well. So we want to know that terpene profile too. So we need that, that done. Then we get down to the nitty gritty. We want to know how much yeast is in it. We want to know how much mold is in it. Hopefully none. Mm-hmm. We also then want to know how much pesticides 
whether it be herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, whatever else it is. Autocides. Yeah. We need to know all of that stuff that's in there. Then we need to know what the microbial count is. You know, mm-hmm. we need to know what microbials are in there. I mean, if it's got a little dust, okay. You know, it's not going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. But if it's got bird shit, mm-hmm. it might hurt you. Mm-hmm. You know, so... That's the testing that has to be done. And and we had some really good labs for the hemp here in the state of Kentucky. I think they've all gone now because the hemp program's pretty much dead. Uh, we're hoping to revive it, and I think it might be coming back. I don't think we'll ever see the glory days of hemp again in the state of Kentucky. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think we might see some decent days coming in the next few years if, if they'll – let us regulate it and do it, do what, how it's supposed to be done. But we do need a good lab to come in and test that with the right equipment, with the right testing stuff. And, you know, that's, that's got to be a must. When you uh, grow your crop and just anyone, if you're in the medical space, you grow your crop, you harvest it, are you allowed to test it in-house or does it have to go to a third party? No, it has to be third-party third testing. Party. We recommend it always be third-party testing. And then I guess, let's say you are a grower, you can't get a testing license for your own grow because that's not a third party, but would you recommend if you are a grower exploring getting your distribution license, your dispensary license, or is it best to hand that off to other people? Like how, how important would it be to get kind of the full stack in terms of licensure if you want to get into the marijuana space, or is it better to start in your niche? We call it, a master license, mm-hmm. a master grower in the Caribbean. Like when I get a master license, I get a grow license. I get processing. a dispensary license, dispensary. a processing license. I get the whole thing. Awesome. That's fine. Florida does that. The problem with Florida is they can only sell to themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so it have to if, go all the way back to your dispensary. You couldn't sell to another dispensary. dispensary. So you would have, uh. yeah. So, I what I think these which, which new, is pointless, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think the new state that's coming on <laughs> with medical marijuana, I think they should implement let everybody buy different license. You might be good at retail, but not don't have a green thumb. Exactly. You know what I mean? Jamon's a scientist. <laughs> He's not good at growing. He's not good at retail, but boy, he can process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Right. Now we're lucky in our group. Yeah, we got a good group. We do. We can do it all. You know, and a lot of <laughs> there's there's other people here in the state of Kentucky that can do it all. There's people in the state of Tennessee and Indiana that can do it all. But these are teams usually. Teams. Yeah, yeah. we put together teams. I yeah. mean, just like a football team. It'd be the smartest way to go when you ask that, right? You ask. Um, does one person get into this industry and, and basically complete the stack? No. Yeah. If you want to do it right, you know what I mean? It'd be smart to find people that, you know, that that's their area and their niche and then bring them in um, and partner and, and bring them into the team. You know what I mean? Um, that ensures that, um, one, the train you're on is operating with high efficiency, but then also – it protects the industry because then we're putting out the best products. We're putting out, you know, the products on time. We're putting out, you know, the obviously qualified and tested products. So, um, 
I, I would think you build it how we build it. You build a team, um, and and more minds go at it, and 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 that's a great way to do it. You sit at the table and you say, okay, what varieties <laughs> do we look at? What you know, what do we want to to do in our dispensary? Do we, do we want to to really look at you know high CBD, high THC, or a, a mixture of all? You know, right. I, think, I think we do all. Right. You know, because right. not one cannabinoid is going to cure one. Or, nothing you don't cure. Okay. Not one cannabinoid is going to heal or help one thing over the other. You know, you have to have its own little team within itself. Mm-hmm. So as a team, we decide how we're going to, to what varieties we're going to grow, what, you know, which grows the best. Mm-hmm. What's your, you know, uh, there's just so many different. Growing marijuana and growing hemp is some of the hardest things I've ever grown in my life. <laughs> and, and each plant grows differently, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Each strain, yeah, each seed that is a different genetic. It's its own care. That's, you know, which yeah. is cool, which is cool about it, because um, I think it really ensures that um, one, you don't just think you can go out there and do any old thing, right? It ensures you take your time and got to look at, you know, what do my nutrients look like? What do my deficiencies look like? Pay attention to the plant, you know, to respect the plant, you know, which um, is something that that we want everyone to understand. Right, because the the plant does help; it does heal. You know, we got to protect it, and it's protected all the way through, all the way it. through the process to the consumption. So, with with all these moving parts and the timeline for medical marijuana in Kentucky, what are you all most excited about over the next six months in your various <laughs> business ventures? Well, we're we're not worrying about Kentucky right now. <laughs> Kentucky, we still have. You know, got some time. There's, there's, they still got to put compliance together. They still mm-hmm. have to, to actually write the, the, the legislation. The legislation for it, right? Uh, I mean, the legislation has passed as far as the law, mm-hmm. but you know, we got compliance issues. We got all different programs that they've got to still look at. So, uh, hopefully, we can work with them and help them. Mm-hmm. You know, from some of our experience over the years, and uh, so uh, we would. We would love to do that one with JB. Of course. You know, of course, make so, it fair for everyone. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, but as far as we're concerned, uh, we have other things that, that we're doing. We uh, we have the British Virgin Islands that's in play right now with some, some good stuff that's going on there. We have a place called Brandywine Bay we're looking at uh, doing a cruise ship resort on. Mm-hmm. We have a bar and restaurant in Antigua called Rum Runners Rum by the Runners. Sea. Runners. <laughs> Rum Runners it. by the Sea. Um, <laughs> it's really, really a, a great place. Look it up on you. Can look at Facebook. It's called Rum Runners by the Sea. You, you'll you'll enjoy it. Um, in Saint Vincent and the Grenadines, we're looking at uh, uh, going there, doing some doing some work. We are working with uh, a company out of England right now in Antigua, but we're also looking at doing some export from. St. Vincent to Antigua Mm -hmm. uh, to do some processing of oil and then from Antigua into the UK with the oil itself. And uh, so that's one of the things that's that's big right now that Caribbean Gold is really looking at. 
we uh, at the bar and restaurant in Antigua, we're also looking at doing uh, uh, our marijuana dispensary there dispensary inside the, the bar. bar and restaurant. So the tourists from the cruise ships come in, you know, if they have they need medical marijuana, it's right there. They can do a self declaration or and uh and get it. Uh, so that's a couple of things. Uh we've got some other things that we got in the works and uh who knows, J B and I we just <laughs> we just we start Take it brain, as it comes. we start brainstorming <laughs> and then we just <laughs> I'm curious, do you all do much with genetics? Because I know, like, in California, if people started trademarking genetics, yeah. if, you know, like, <laughs> oh, you grew Skywalker OG, do you own that trademark? It's a, it's becoming a thing now. Do you? How do you guys look at that? Or I look at genetics as that's way over my head. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a geneticist. Yeah. And that's what you got to be to do this. Yeah. And you got to be patient. Yeah, you have to be a. Do you all have mother plants? Of course. Got, <laughs> so I've always been curious about a mother plant. Does, how long does that thing stay alive? Oh, you can keep a mother as long as you want. Yeah, like I know. Ten years, twenty years. <laughs> I, you know, I know for a fact. I know for a fact that Bobby Dobble at Dobble's Greenhouse has got hemp plants that he got in 2015. That's mothers, and he said uh, they're CBD RX cherry, and he still clones off of those of those mothers. And I guess for our listeners who don't understand a mother, it's basically a plant that houses the genetics. And I'll let Tim correct me if I mess anything up. But then you just cut off pieces of that and root it, and then it becomes its own separate plant. Yes, that way, you can keep the genetics alive. That's the mm-hmm. cutting or the clone, and that genetics that genetic stays the same as the mother. Just as strong. I remember learning about, I think it was watching the movie Pineapple Express, and, <laughs> and they, they have the mother plant in the bottom of a CIA bunker, and I, I just, I thought that was crazy. You keep this plant alive, and that becomes your source of all the marijuana you grow. We have a friend. I mean, I tell you, when we went to, uh, you know, one of Tim's partner's facility, who he talked about earlier, John Finstrom, and this was you know, right at the brink of my retirement, I'm coming back home and really able to step into to the business side with, with Tim. You know what I mean? <clears throat> we walk into this room and I see, um, I think it was a 13-week plant that was about, I want to say at least 10 foot tall. And, you know, I, I go to Tim immediately. I'm like, Tim, I was expecting to see a plant. This is a tree. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, you know, he was like, that that that's that's a commercial grow. This is what it really looks like. You know what I mean? And that was really when my mind like wrapped around, okay, um, the lab, right? How does um cookies become cookies, right? The the process into that. And um who knows when you when you talk about genetics, um, we're, we 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 have to handle a lot of things from the from the top from the top down. However, here's what I will say: in our future, yes, we'll work on um, patenting our own our own line. That will be something, and uh, definitely because I'm big on the genetics side of myself. Yeah, I'm big on the genetics and side. The, the, <laughs> the genetics part of it is is a great. 
It's a great tool because that mm-hmm. way you're you're developing your own. That word keeps escaping me. Strain? No. Starts your with own a niche. P. Starts with a P. P. Oh, for God's sake. Anyway, you're developing your own uh, strains, yeah. but during that, you have to look at the different cannabinoids. You have to look at all that that particular plant phenotype. Phenotypes, yes. Okay, so now I can, now, now that, I can have the conversation. That was the one he was looking for. Yeah, that was the word. The phenotypes. Okay. The different phenotype. You can have the same. Let's use Bobby. Dabble's CBD RX cherry. John Taylor is the one who actually brought those in uh, from Commonwealth. But the CBD RX cherry has been a workhorse plant for the CBD industry for years. But the phenotype, you could have 200 mothers and the phenotype be different in each one of them. Mm-hmm. So here's what you do as a grower. As a geneticist, you'll look at the phenotypes from those mother plants. You will basically plant those plants and keep them separate. You will take them to fruition all the way through. And then you look at the yield. Number one, how much is it going to yield? You look at the terpene profile. You look at the cannabinoid count. You look at... Uh, how strong and sturdy the plant is. You look at everything, okay, and the winner gets to be the mother. <laughs> so you might have 200 plants, and you have one or two that's going to be the mother's. Mm-hmm. Because the creme the, de la creme. Yeah, because yes. those, that's the best of the best. That's the goat. Interesting. That's 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 wild. The amount of science behind this plant amazes me. You could spend just a whole lifetime researching it. It's it's wild. But I, I'm curious. In I know there's a. I remember reading something. I read a lot, and I was reading about how there's a kind of an argument between terpenes and THC potency. Some people argue it only matters what the terpenes are in it. And then some other people are like, I don't care about the terpenes. I want to know the potency. But at the end of the day, you can have a 12% THC with a really high terpene, terpene count. That'll profile. get you mm-hmm. maybe have more medicinal benefits than the higher THC. Where do you all stand on that? Definitely. Um, you know, from a consumer standpoint, um, the THC is if you are really looking for the high. Right, the the head high, the 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 psychedelic part of it, euphoria. Right, yeah, the euphoria part of it. Um, the terpene profile is really it gives you the effects of what you're really looking for. You know what mm-hmm. I mean. So, for the person who really wants to to to, I guess, focus their mind, you may look for a sativa, right, for a green crack or something that may help you, like, slow your mind, but be alert. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I know, you know, for for a guy like me with crazy thoughts, a, a sativa slows it down but keeps me active to where, hey, I'm still firing on all cylinders. You know what I mean? But that's more from a terpene profile. A lot of people don't understand the plant to that magnitude as well. 
So if you start talking that level to them, it might go right over their head. And, of course, they're always going to convert back to, you know, what does the THC THC number say, right, which is not the end-all, be-all. It's not because, like you said, you can have a – what is one of the lower – Lower, um, Jack Herrera. Jack, Jack Herrera. It's, it's, not, it's not ever really going to be a 32. A th- you're not really going to see that out of it. However, it can have some of the long-lasting effects longer than a 33%. You know what I mean? And, and that's when you understand the terpene profile is more important. So uh, what I would tell people is look for the terpene profile, right? Don't get so caught on the, the, the first filter which should be your TAC potency is the first filter. And uh, the other thing, too, <laughs> that, that we've seen, and I and I saw this in Oklahoma, I see it in, in the recreational states like Colorado and Nevada and California and, and those places, they're growing for THC. Mm-hmm. They're growing, people want to get high. Mm-hmm. The medical states, we're not growing for THC, even though what we've found is people are getting their medical card and they're looking for THC because they want that high. Mm -hmm. That's not always the best. I've talked to thousands of people Mm -hmm. that that smoke. I've never smoked a joint. (laughs) I wouldn't know what it tastes like, but I can damn sure grow it. (laughs) The problem is, is people, they, they like in Oklahoma, they, they would go in and they would buy it and you would have what we call potheads. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Basically buying medical marijuana and they're really pushing the dispensaries to get more higher THC. Well, what I've talked to some of these people, high, the, the 31% THC is not always good. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if it makes you to the point <laughs> that it makes you sick, right. it makes you nauseous, it makes you unfunctional, unfunctional, <laughs> paranoid, paranoid, and, and 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 all like that. It makes you that. Why use it? We're using this plant for medical purposes. We're using this plant to heal. We're using this plant for depression. We're using this plant for relaxation. You know why <clears throat> take it? It would be like like drinking a whole fifth of bourbon yeah exactly so let's get a 31 percent thc plant let's smoke a whole joint or let's get a whole bottle of bourbon and drink the whole thing in five minutes that's the same difference that yes that that's when it becomes uh, a substance abuse Uh, exactly substance Uh use Uh exactly and i think the best thing that we could do people especially people in the marijuana industry and the hemp industry is educate, 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 educate the people. And you want to go medical. Why? Because it's going to give you all that you need mm-hmm. on both sides. If you are, um, you know, an owner like we are <laughs> or a consumer, right? Um, the medical um, just industry puts you in a space where, you know, the consumer that is looking for the TAC and once it, yes, medical can give you the higher register and TAC potency as well as from an owner that's really trying to give a caregiver, right, from a caregiver standpoint, um, it's going to help them, hey, I can still 
care for my patients. You know what I mean? And so, like he said, education is the key. Um, We got to educate. We got to educate. Definitely before we go recreational, um, just because that's what's known and that's where people will stop. But then we don't understand how that makes sense. Yes. You know what I mean? Because we could talk about Oklahoma, who I think is wrecked now, right? But does that make sense for them? No. <laughs> and and it, you brought up a great point. It's like when you're growing medical, you're growing for someone with a need rather mm-hmm. than for someone with a want. And as someone making a product for anyone, if you're making a product people don't really care about, they just want it, it you're going to put a different type of love into it than if, <laughs> oh, you're, my client needs this. Come on. You're going to put different type it of. It hits different. Exactly. Come on. <laughs> and, it, and it becomes all about the money instead of all about what it can do for you. Exactly. Come on. So shifting gears a little bit and talking about education, mm-hmm. before we wrap up, Jamon, can we talk about the Jamon Brown Foundation? Come on, come how, on. how did this come on start <laughs> and and what do you have going on right now? Man, listen, like we talked about cannabis, um, it was a passion of mine. Um, and in 2016, when I I was drafted in 2015, but in 2016 I started my foundation. It was really um, a vehicle to give back. Right, but really just to be an example. You know what I mean? Um, because I've done so many different things, um, I like to call my foundation really a support, right? Um, because we've really assisted um, other organizations and coalitions with what they've done, right? Um, and so I started the foundation uh, with the intent back in 2016 to help the homeless um, I experienced homelessness growing up. What I didn't know was homelessness. Listen, homeless is considered, if you're couch surfing, that's homeless. Right? So maybe it is with a cousin or with an aunt and with a grandmother. But if it's not your stable, same home, that you're homeless. I didn't know that. You know what I mean? And, and that education, again, um, led me to like, how, how do I help someone like that? Cause that was me not saying that that was a bad situation. Cause I didn't, I never slept on the street, <laughs> you know what I mean? But the stability of home. So started, um, in 2016, um, you know, created the first partnership coalition of the homeless here in Kentucky, um, which serves of course our homeless uh, population. Um, but then just from there, took that partnership and took it everywhere that I played, um, anywhere that I, I work, right? We talked about volcanoes. Well, we partnered with Caribbean Gold and sent um, a whole uh, container call container full of resources, whether it's toilet, uh, toilet paper, you know, tissue to um, water filters, right? We, we, we filled it um, and sent down there just to aid, you know what I mean? Um and that's really just my way of saying, hey, when you are in a platform and you are given a certain space, one of the things that you can do while you're there, you know what I mean? So my foundation, um, again, has been a passion project of mine. Um, right now, um, we're kind of switching gears. So in 2020, uh, when the pandemic hit, um, the social injustices hit as well. Right. Um, everyone knows about the Breonna Taylor. 
of course, here in Louisville. Um, that being in my backyard, it hit me different, right? And so we kind of shifted gears and started looking more towards the at-risk youth, right? Um, that be, being most at-risk youth look like me, right? Young black kid. <laughs> and so that was like, all right, that makes sense for me to figure out how can we help this, which could have been me, right? Um, and so <clears throat> right now um, we're working with the Russell Vision Development Center trying to redevelop um, the site on 22nd and Jefferson and create an empowerment center, um, which is going to be a center for youth and their families, right, to come and engage um, into sports. Um, there will be arcades. Um, you know, there's there'll, there'll be a lot of different spaces in there. Again, you know, I, I – because uh, what do they call it? Um, because of the the negotiations and talks, the confidentiality, non, non disclosure, uh, uh, things that we're in with with some of the partners, um, like U of L, U of L Health, um, can't give all the details, but basically create a safe space that has resources for the community, right? Um, that gives them a platform to not only do what they do, but find what they do, right? Um, I know as a kid, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I was good at a lot of things, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So um, this is a space that helps them do that, right? We plan to partner with a lot of community organizations that provide different programming and services, right? Um, again, my foundation is a supporter, right? We don't um, provide services or a programming. We that's not what we do. What we do is master in supporting people, right? Um, and that's what we've been able to do. So um we're looking again to redevelop the site on twenty second of Jefferson. Um the the timeline on that is still being constructed considering we gotta knock a building down and rebuild it. Um however um uh, we think we're bringing something new um one of its kind um, and something that will really create positive change in the West End, and not only in the West End, um, just in the city of Long, right? Because when you look at crime, crime is everywhere, right? It's not just in one place. And so if we can start at the heart of crime, then we know we could touch it everywhere. So That's beautiful. I love <laughs> it. I think uh, you're, you said you started your foundation 2016? 2016. So you were 23 or 24 23, years old? Man, listen, wow. 23 and still figuring it out. It, but you know what I mean? I don't, <laughs> like, if we were to look at, because you're a philanthropist in a, in a way, but if we were to look up the average age of a philanthropist, it'd, it'd be probably 60. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. I think that's so yeah. inspiring because a, a lot of people who do have the philanthropic heart, they think, oh, well, I'm never going to have the money to do what I want to do. But it's. You, you know, know, you know what I would say to that person? Just start. Exactly. You know what I mean? Just start. Um, you know, because I, I won't sit here saying that, you know, I've made the most money in the world. However, if you leverage different things at different times, it can make more, you know, more of an impact than you know. Exactly. You know what I mean? And so um, if you're ever on that street corner and you see that um, Cozer Charity, um, you know, the Shriner guy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that quarter that's sitting in there, that that is something. You know what exactly. I mean? And that's a start. So um, that's what I would encourage anybody and, and everybody because helping uh, goes a long way. Yes, it does. That's awesome. 
Thank you for doing that for the city of Louisville and other cities. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. We all got to do our part. That's great. Well, are we ready for the blitz round? Or actually, before we do that, tell us about the volcano story. <laughs> tell us about the volcano. You got to bring the volcano. Because listen, not only did it erupt, I can't remember how many eruptions. But listen, oh. you just wait till, wait till you tell because he's calling me with the updates. Oh, well, man. actually, we were on a plane when it erupted. Remember? Yeah. We uh, that's right. The first, the, the first eruption, we were headed to Jamaica. That's right. Yep. That's right. I totally forgot. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, Kelly and Jamon and I and uh, we get Shannon a call. And, and, and everything, <laughs> and we're, we're on a plane, and in, in the middle of getting – Landing in Palm Beach. Yeah, we, to we had to refuel. Yep. Yeah, to refuel. <laughs> we get a call, and it was Norman from Norman. La Sofia erupted. And he sent me a picture. And it. There, and we're like, what? So, <laughs> so during COVID... <laughs> We had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things that happened. A lot That's, of shit hit the fan. A lot of shit oh, hit bad. the fan. All bad. I think for everybody though, right? But you know, things happen for a reason. <laughs> they do. They do. And we not, we might not be sitting here today giving all this good information if things hadn't happened that Tomorrow. way. Did. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so COVID was just about getting over. Yep. And so Jamon and I and Kelly and Shannon, Jamon's yep. wife. We decided we were going to go to Jamaica and look at some business interest in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So we go one Saturday morning. We leave. And on the way down there to fuel up in Palm Beach, we get a phone call from Norman and says, La Sofia erupted. We knew she was rumbling. We knew she was going to erupt. But the day before, my wife called Norman. Norman. And Norman you know, lives there. He lives in close to the volcano, as a matter of fact. She said, Norman, how long do you think it's going to be before this thing erupts? Norman said, oh, Kelly, it'll be seven years. He said it could go for ten years. He said probably seven or eight years before it erupts. <laughs> so Norman calls us on two days after and says, oh, it erupted. Kelly said, well, it's your seven years, Norman. <laughs> yeah, right. That seven-year buffer went yeah. out the window. So we get to Jamaica and we... Uh, get all settled in, and we we start calling, and we start making calls, and and just just monitoring some of the things that that was happening. And I mean, people couldn't breathe. It was so the ash was so thick. It at twelve o'clock noon, it looked like it was midnight. Yeah, it blacked out the sun. I mean, we were getting all this feed, all these pictures, everything coming in to us. And we were in Jamaica, I mean, and we, and it was all over the Caribbean news. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, La Sofia has erupted. It's, they don't know how many people's dead. They don't, you know, all this stuff. Luckily, luckily, not one person died That's mm-hmm. great. during that volcano eruption. But we had 35 acres of weed planted up on the mountain. <laughs> that, went to, <laughs> that went to hell. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it got covered up. Yeah. Uh, but that's okay because the next crop was even better because Dude, yeah. of all the minerals. All the minerals. But listen, about, Dylan yeah. was crushed, man. When you could see see him running his fingers through just the ash and yeah, yeah. all the videos of it that was like this singing and dancing was all down. It's oh man, it was a, it was a just a a hard sight to see. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, uh, 
So <laughs> you, you you never can predict Mother Nature. No. You know, what, what was the cleanup effort in oh, terms man. of getting your farm back up and running? What was well, the timeline? So what we did, what we did, the first thing that we did when we got back mm-hmm. from Jamaica. I mean, we were just down there a week just doing business, and then we came back, and Jamon kicked in gear. Danny Mosby. <laughs> yeah, Danny. Just rallied the troops, man, and and I mean, just he he got partnered with a couple organizations, got um, these water filters in. Um, I think we sent about a thousand water filters. Um, yeah, because the water was, <laughs> you know, nasty. Man, we sent Coca-Cola. I, I, I we sent just everything you could think of, dude. Salvation you know what I mean? Army. Danny got Salvation, Salvation Army. Army uh, they pitched in. Coca-Cola. Um, what else? Danny got the uh, the. The middle school in at North Olam. Yeah, County, they supplied, yeah. I mean, they uh tons school, of water. I mean, listen, that's where I went to school. Yeah, listen, like people came out the woodworks though, really, because what we had did was went on Facebook, went on to, uh, um, I think it was WHAS, and just talked about what was going on in the Caribbean and uh, how we wanted to help. And like I said. You know, you'd be surprised what helping looks like, right? I think we had families show up with, you know, um, giveaway clothes and coats and things like that, that that we ended up throwing on there. And so just um, really the community rallied um, behind what was going on. You know well, what we I mean? Put, we put probably half a million dollars worth of stuff on yeah. a 40-foot container. I mean, listen, wow. stuffed oh, wow. it. Stuffed it. Yeah. I mean, you stuffed could, it. Plus a tractor. Put a tractor a on there tractor. first. Tractor was on there first. <laughs> tractor. And we Tetris everything else around it. Man, yeah. listen. Wow. We were out there all day. Yeah. All day. Yeah. But we got it done, man. We sent some resources in there. And uh, I think the people really loved it. We was getting calls like, hey, oh, yeah. everybody's using this stuff, man. You know? Well, then, and then, <laughs> so what happened, uh, it took. What, four weeks yep. for the container to get there. From, shipped from Louisville to Miami and then from Miami. Or, no, it shipped to uh, Savannah. So, yep. And then shipped out of Savannah on into St. Vincent. So Kelly and I flew down uh, to St. Vincent, and then we uh, uh, was there when we opened the container. And we had all the people that came out. I mean, we had school, you know, the school up in, up in Georgetown. Georgetown was affected the most because it's right at the foot of the volcano and it's the second largest town in in St. Vincent. Vin- and uh so they were school all the schools had been closed the kids lost their schools lost their homes lost everything. And I I I, I almost wish this was had video so we could yeah, we could show some yeah. of the the stuff that we did. Old folks' homes. We took them wheelchairs. Remember, mm-hmm. we had people donating mm-hmm. wheelchairs. We, you know, and they needed it, you know. So, but the cleanup we took, we we sent pressure washers. Jamon and I went to Home Depot and, <laughs> and bought pallets. Man, just extra, extra, you know, oh, whatever man. little bit we could. Obviously, we had business interests there. <clears throat> um, but just from a grand scheme of like, you know, you always help a brother. You know what I mean? Anytime someone's in need, you always try to, if you can, you extend it. And and we could, and we did the best we could, and it actually did more than we thought it thought oh, it would do. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we, 
Kelly and I get there and, and we distribute everything out. We actually take it and hand deliver some of it to some of the old folks' homes and stuff like that. And just the reaction to some of these people. Mm-hmm. Cappy, the guy that I, I told you about, he when we were in Jamaica, Cappy, I, I finally got a hold of him. And he left home with his cell phone, his underwear, and that was it. And his home was demolished along with his wife. Mm-hmm. And he was crying. And Cappy's the toughest man ever I met. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, Cappy. I told you the story about <laughs> mm-hmm. Cappy, and he, and he said, "Tim, I have nothing." Oh, and no. so Kelly and I that day, the next day, got on the phone and literally uh, uh, sent him, Sabuto, and Norman, each one fifteen hundred dollars cash, mm-hmm. U.S., which is a lot of money to them, you know, just so they could. Survive. Survive. Get back. Yeah. And and we got a list of everything they needed personally, and we packed that up personally, you know, for them because they were, you know, special. Mm-hmm. Special. They were close to us. You know. They're so, important. You got to take care of your people. Take care yeah. of your people, man. And then, uh, <laughs> and what Jamon was saying too about his foundation, um, several years ago when we first went down there, I was up, up I'd been up in the bush, and you were talking about. Living down there, I, I went into the bush and I lived with the caribs in the bush. Watched them grow weed in the bush illegally. Explain the bush. <laughs> A tropical jungle. <laughs> Would it be the equivalent of the sticks in Kentucky? <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, basically where I grew up in, in Lee County in Beattyville. Exactly. Uh, but. Uh, I grew up in a little town called Beattyville, Kentucky. You might call it the sticks, but I call it home. <laughs> you know, um, you might call yeah. it the bush. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. but uh, it, it was a tropical rainforest. Okay, and and it, it was up on the side of La Safiere, the volcano, and uh, spent many nights. I mean, the mosquito is their national bird. so you know after a while they quit eating on me and they just left me alone you know Uh, so but uh it it takes a while for you get that immunity built up but but no they have the vincentian parrot is their national bird and which which is uh, uh, there's only 50 of them left in the wild and they're only in saint vincent and the wow. Grenadines, and I, I've watched them fly over me many times, and they talk to you when they fly over. Wow. Or they don't talk to you, but they balk, yeah, balk yeah. at yeah. you, you know. <laughs> and uh, so the uh, – but living in the bush and, and, and living that experience is something a lot of people don't get to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm dumb old country boy from Kentucky, and I've, you know, got to do things and, and seen things that – most people will never get to see and experience other cultures and living in the bush with, with, you know, different tribes and stuff like that. It's just been a real great experience for me. That's and awesome. I bring it back and I can share it, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, now we have bar and a restaurant there in Antigua and a lot of the people that come into our bar, they'll ask how we got there. What'd you do? Just decide to retire? <laughs> no, it's been a journey. Hey, and you know, it's still going. And it's, it's been a journey. And, and, and we like to tell, and people are are awed by the cultures. Mm-hmm. Once you really explain to them these people's true culture, mm-hmm. you know, and how, you know, how they were suppressed. 
you know, the Caribs uh, were indigenous people of the Caribbean, kind of a cross between American Indian and South American Indians, and all merged in the middle there in the Caribbean. And then you had the black people that had came there from Africa that were slaves. You know, uh, the legend goes how uh, St. Vincent was populized was a slave ship ran into one of the reefs in St. Vincent, and the slaves escaped the ship and ran into tropical rainforest, and they could never gather them all up. And that's how they started populating in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's just the culture. And, I mean, you can get the stories, you know, in the books there. But it, it's really, really, really. And like he was talking about the Jamon Found, Brown Foundation, the first year we were there, and I, I got off on another tangent. I'm sorry, guys. That's perfectly fine. I, I know you don't like that. <laughs> no, that's what well it's for. But um, we were up in Georgetown. And this was before La Safiere erupted. This was, and I come down out of the bush, and I saw this table about this size, and there was little paper plates sitting on the table, and these little children, three to five year old, were sitting around this table, and they had a green mango in front of them. And I looked at Sabuto. Because he'd pick me up. I'd come walk down out of the jungle, and he'd pick me up. And I said, what? Are they having snack? And he said, no, Tim. They're having dinner. It's the mango. <laughs> I s- not tonight, they're not. Right. We went to town. We bought pizza. There you go. <laughs> Poor little fellas. They had belly aches the rest of the next day. Oh, but by gosh. God, they ate good that night, you know? Yeah. So... <laughs> And I and I and I, I really want to tell, if I got time, you got plenty of time. I want to tell this story. Tell it about a guy, <laughs> and we we referenced him many times. And it's about education, mm-hmm. and education is something. I mean, I I push my kids, I push my grandkids, I push everybody needs an education. In St. Vincent and the Grenadines, you cannot go to school. Unless you have the money to have shoes, to have school supplies, and to have a uniform. So you cannot go to school unless you have that. And if your family don't have that, you cannot go to school. Most of them didn't. There was probably 2,000 kids on that island that could not go to school when they reached school age. So... I asked Sabuto about that. I said, man, that's, he said, Tim, I didn't go to school till I was 10 years old. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. He said, my family, we were poor. I lived up in, in Mesopotamia, which is the central part of the island. And it's, it's, it's high, so it's always foggy and cloudy in there because it's a, a rainforest. You know, mm-hmm. the, the clouds come in off the mountain. And he said, he said, no, I couldn't go to, he said, I started the first grade when I was 10. I said, wow. And now he's very educated. I said, so tell me your story. Well, his story was he started when he was 10. And by the time he was 
17, he graduated from high school and got accepted to a, a wonderful, I don't know which school it was, but it was in England. It was in the UK. Uh, become an attorney and become a uh, barrister. You know what a barrister is? Step no. above an attorney in, oh, yeah. in the UK. And he came back home to make a difference. And he became the Minister of Agriculture of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And uh, under Ralph Gonslaves, which is the Prime Minister, was a good man. Um, but that was his story. And so Kelly and I, that year, we started donating backpacks and school supplies to every child that didn't have, that couldn't go to school so they could go to school. And we talked to other people and got them to donate the uniforms and other people donated the shoes. So now every kid that wants to go to school in St. Vincent and the Grenadines gets to go to school. That's that's freaking awesome, Come you know. On. So that thank thank you all for doing that. <laughs> well, but that's that's part of what that's what we do. That's, yes, that's, 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 that's what, what we do. We, you know, it's not about the money. Yeah, <laughs> no. we have businesses. Yeah, we have to make a living. Yeah, we have payroll. Yeah, we have taxes. We have everything. Offer everything. <laughs> not and, only do y'all grow cannabis, you grow community. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, and 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 we grow cattle. Come on, cattle <laughs> and goats <laughs> and goats. <laughs> no, don't and say goats because it was cattle, produce. community, cannabis, three C's. Oh, the three C's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just joking. No, but, <laughs> but that, but that's that's some of the things that we we are doing down there to make a difference. Like one of the things is look at the cattle industry there. They've had cattle in St. Vincent and Grenadines since 1600s. They are a remnant of some ship that unloaded them there for beef or to milk. And they're still there. A very beefy breed of cattle. And it's their its own breed. Now, will the, the Cattle Association ever recognize it as a breed? No. <laughs> but what my goal is and my plan in the Caribbean with the cattle industry is to take and do what we been looking at doing and doing is with the wagyu take the wagyu breeding genetics crossbreed those cattle down there because we can't grow corn there it's not it's it's hard to grow corn and it's because it's an island i mean it's it's small we can't grow enough feed to feed what we need to produce but they have abundance of grasses so the wagyu cattle live are mostly grass-fed cattle and there's wonderful tasting beef. So why not crossbreed some of these beefy cattle already, get a semi-wagyu, get a better a better beef, and then export it throughout Caracom to all of the uh, resorts and stuff like that that's bringing beef in now from New Zealand and paying 40% duties on it, plus they're paying $35,000 for a 20-foot freezer container to get there. We can cut out all of that. Still supply the cattle need throughout Caricom, throughout the whole Caribbean thing. I mean, that's that's some of my goals that 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 we want to do. We have another uh, partner, uh, Jai Rampasad, out of Trinidad, who is interested in in working in in the goats. We could have a l- very large 
millions, millions for goat meat being shipped to Trinidad. But we got to figure out the logistics of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's so much that we can still do in the Caribbean to help them, but also have a thriving business, mm-hmm. employ a lot of people, mm-hmm. make sure the more people that we employ there and the more people that we help there, the more kids get to go to school to get an education. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's not like it's just we're going down there raping and pillaging like some of some companies try to do sometimes and just get what they can get and go. Mm-hmm. We're trying to build, like you say, communities. We're trying to build that so that they can get that education and do the the right thing, you know. And there's a lot of these countries down there that you got to watch the politicians and watch the governments because you've heard of the Banana Republic. There's some of them down there, you know. <laughs> we just don't go to those. Right. <laughs> we we go we, we we go to where we know well, we're welcome and Cebuto we know we Caesar get work done. Or in the British Virgin Islands, a wonderful, wonderful man by the name of Natalio Wheatley is the new premier or premier of the British Virgin Islands. He's a very close friend to to me. Jamon's talked yeah. to him many times. He's a good man and he's the new the new president, he was just reelected. He was, he got put into office when the old premier left unexpectedly, and then he was reelected just last month for another five year term. That's awesome. So, and Natalio went to school at Purdue. Whoa, <laughs> yeah, interesting. Wow, that's that's wild. You guys are sewing. In- entrenched down there in so many different moving parts have you written a book yet tim <laughs> i i would love to i would i seriously he's got to slow down you know long <laughs> enough to do that though you know what i mean well, i'm just 63 i'll come back to louisville and he left the the whole draft in uh antigua <laughs> <laughs> at the bar <laughs> yeah really that could happen <laughs> i i would love to write a book about all the experiences that we've had in the Caribbean and things that we've done and we've done together, all of us. Um, I just don't know anybody that can write it because I'm not very articulate. Yeah. But, you know, I get my point across. I'll do a little research. I'm I'm pretty sure there's there's probably some people out there that could write a pretty mean book on your behalf. Yeah, Call yeah. we we think it'd make a hell gold. of a Netflix movie too, yeah, don't Netflix we, JB? Series, oh yeah, for sure. We now we do have series. some connections to the film industry that's up and coming. In okay, I, I I got a buddy who's a writer. I might bring your story by him and see. Ooh, see what you'd be that'd be fun, man. Up. If, if you guys are actually interested in that, I could seriously. It, you interested? Come in on, it, you know I am. His name's Felipe Diepa. He he actually played the uh, voice of Diego and Dora as a ha, child. Diego. Oh, and, uh, he did acting as a kid, but ultimately he wanted to be a, a show a, writer. A show writer. And yeah. so right now he does a lot of commercial short film type stuff. But he's, you know. He, he's a very creative guy, and he would love this story, and he could probably write something and get in front of the right people. Right. Um, that's. I mean, that's that's the most important, getting in front of the right people. Exactly. And it's, you know, it, it, I, I just think not only my story, but Sabuto's story, Natalio's oh, story. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, the, the, the whole La story. You know the the whole the whole story because I think it I think it would bring light to the real Caribbean. People see the Caribbean now; they see 
It's like a sandal. pair of it, sandals. Yeah. Or they see the Hilton or, or this type of resort. They don't see what really goes on in the Caribbean. Yeah, they think of it as a paradise vacation spot. They don't understand any of the struggle behind it or no. any just what it's like outside of the tourist areas. I, exactly. And, 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 I mean, it's it's much more in-depth than that. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it's its own story as well. So. We'll, we'll, we'll do another podcast one day, but we're we're getting getting up to the two hour mark this is one of our longest ones but before we end it y'all ready for the blitz round these are just quick questions we'll ask them and then tim you can go and jamon you can go and all right first one if business meetings had a walk-up song what would yours be (laughs) have we got time to think about this (laughs) oh let's see what's the first one that comes to your mind Sweet home Alabama. <laughs> okay. Because that's how I wake people up every morning that's on the cruise ships at the bar. At 7.30 every morning, I play Sweet Home Alabama. I love it. And the cruise ship's back in there, and I have people walking out on the balcony, especially if they're American ships, and they're waving, and and then I play the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> that's hilarious. Jamal, what you got? Man, I... um. Too many songs? <laughs> I got too many, but, you know, we always doing something big when I'm with Tim, so I'm going to have to say real big Nipsey Hustle. Okay. Real yes. Hustle. That's a great <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, okay. And then um, what book, and if you don't read, what movie had the biggest impact on your business or life? Mm. mm. I can say, I mean, I, I, I can't say life, just because I I read it in the last year. Okay. However, what it does for my life is kind of make sense of the picture. You know what I mean? Um, which it was um, a great time to boss up Rick Ross. Okay, I I I almost. Bought that book the other day. It's actually great. It's a great reader. He he talks about really what he did in during COVID, and um, you know, kind of some of the things that he's trying to do with some of his businesses and different things like that. Which it it really spoke to me because he's doing it with people that he, you know, not only has known for a long time, but you know people that he called friend you know what i mean um and then they grow um to family you know what i mean and and when i think of my life i i think that's how my life is going i've built businesses with um people who were friends that are now family you know what i mean so um great it's a great read it's uh it's not too long i think it's about 150 pages um and so it's it, it was a good one now, this might sound corny, but it's the truth. It's a book called The Secret. Yeah, The Secret. See, I have it. Okay, so that's my next reader. I actually just bought it. But, yeah. Who's the author? I'm having it. There's several. So there, it's it's a collective of uh, philosophers, um, you know, doc, just those 
those level of people that have studied, um, you know, methodologies and, and things like that, that really talk talk about the law of attraction. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and anything your mind thinks about, it brings about. And it's uh, actually my next read that it that you say that, which is so funny. Yeah, that's probably Napoleon Hill might be on that one. I think I think James so. Allen, I think so. As men I think, think so. It. Napoleon Hill. Yeah, that I mean, um, I got a photographic memory, and so looking at some of the authors, I think Napoleon was one. Um, James Allen could be Napoleon. He wrote a book back in like the nineteen twenties called "Think and Grow Rich," and mm-hmm. it, like the first half of the book is literally all about. Okay, you want to be a millionaire? Well, think you're going to be a millionaire, mm-hmm. and you're going to be one. Based, but you know, in old language, and yeah. it's, it's like he really was all about. If you can't think that you're going to be successful, like that's the first step. Figure that out first before you even try anything. Right. And, uh, it's a it's a great great. But it, but do you know how true that is? Oh, it's it's you know what I mean, and and, and I'm a simple testament of that. Just being real, because everyone told me playing in the NFL was impossible, right? I had a high school teacher tell me um, I would more likely shake the hand of a man who was struck by lightning than I would play in the NFL, right? But it was, I think, sophomore year of high school, sophomore year of high school that um, I really – and, and one of my best friends could tell you because we Dagner got into a fight over just the the belief that I had that I was a pro. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, I truly believe that it was that, like, determined thought that I could be a pro that made, that made me rise to the level, right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, when you say that, that's like just confirmation, affirmation. Right. Exactly. And, and I would tell anybody that's listening, if you believe it, you can't achieve it, which is the cliche, like something that we've always heard. Right. If I believe it, I can't. But it's so true. Just try it. And don't listen to the teachers who tell you it can't happen. Hey, listen. <laughs> block out the noise for sure. What's that old saying? When you can't do, you teach. Oh, I got this one. <laughs> Those who so cannot true. do. Teach. teach and those who cannot teach teach Jim. <laughs> that's a uh, God bless Jack Black on that one. Come that's on, Jack a, Black. That's yeah. one of the School best. Of rock. Yeah, one of the best movies and quotes of all time. Last question <laughs> though: What's your go-to activity to help you decompress after a long week? Mm, my go-to activity. Um, I've got a few. <laughs> I've got a few. Um, you know, I'm retired now, so I like a nice joint and a, a glass of wine and some good music. Um, but if I'm if I'm really trying to decompress, um, it's nothing like shooting some guns, which I haven't done in a long time. And probably the um, last time was with me. The last time I <laughs> think I was with Tim. Um, and so I'm long overdue, but definitely. Um, you know, letting some rounds out, blowing some steam is, is probably one of those things. Yeah, that's awesome. Getting on the golf cart, <laughs> riding around the farm with my grandsons. I love it. And and just just looking at nature. 
a golf Look, cart ride will get you in a, a whole type of That's <laughs> yeah. where, I mean, a golf cart ride around the farm, <laughs> looking at the crops, looking at the woods, looking at our <laughs> deer stands, looking at our deer feeders. Just, it's almost meditation. Yep. Yep. Love it. Well, this has been great. Yeah. I appreciate We appreciate your all's time. And yeah. we're going to have to do another podcast. Thank you guys for coming on. Oh, thank you Thanks guys for, for having us. us. We yeah. enjoyed it. Hey guys, it's Cal here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the How To Business Show. If you would like to stay up to date with upcoming episodes and what we're doing behind the scenes, make sure to follow us on social media. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and our website, www.htbshow.com. Finally, If you have a story to share or some feedback for the show, feel free to contact us at htbs at gillisanteam.com. Important links for today's episode can be found in the description. From all of us on the How To Business team, thank you for listening and see you next time.